Strategic Financial Partners presents the Rush Hour Podcast, where the rubber meets the road on the economy, stock market, and personal finance. Now here's your host, Matt Rush. Welcome to the Rush Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rush, and with me today is Federated Hermes Portfolio Manager and Equity Strategist, Steve Chevron. Federated is an investment manager with over $600 billion in assets under management. Steve has been a regular contributor across the financial media, including CNBC's Squawk Box, Trading Nation, and Fast Money. He's also been quoted in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. So let's go ahead and jump right in uh, and talk about the economic recovery. GDP forecasts have been all over the board. The shape of the recovery has been heavily debated. But you think no matter what's going on, it's going to be an uneven recovery. Tell us why you think that. Well, look, when you have the kind of disruption in the economy that we've had here, uh, number one, it takes you some time to to recover from that. And so, you know, while the markets can be... Uh, the economy usually used. It, it takes a while to, to, to bring everything back. And I think that this particular crisis is going to do a couple of things. It's going to accelerate some trends that were already in place, uh, move forward in technology, what we call the digital revolution being one of those things. We think the reonshoring from China back to the United States is going to be accelerated, something we call kind of the manufacturing renaissance. Um, the, the preference of uh, online shopping over brick and mortar, right? And it's also going to disrupt some things. It's going to disrupt uh, commercial real estate. It's going to disrupt uh, potentially some of the cruise line businesses. It's going to change the way we attend sports and travel and things of that nature. Not 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 kill those things, but change the way that they work. And there's going to be adjustments that are going to be uneven. And we think not everyone's going to win. Not everyone's going to be okay. Certain companies are going to do really well. Uh, and other companies aren't going to exist. Um, and that's a dispersion that'll be greater than what we've seen, we think, over the last several years. So not everybody's going to win, but I hear you mention uh, the digital revolution. So talk you talked about how the, that's going to make the economy more productive. What are some key technologies that are going to be behind that revolution? Yeah, this is, this is probably one of our, our bigger thoughts that we've had and, and written quite a bit about. So we think that there are a series of technologies that come together uh, to equal essentially what's an industrial revolution. Automation, artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, uh, super high-speed internet like 5G, uh, advanced biotechnology, 3D printing, blockchain, right? What these things are doing is they have made mediocrity unacceptable, right? If, it's, if you're average, I can automate it. Um, it's put downward pressure on pricing. It's made put upward pressure on earnings. And we think that uh, it will, over the long run, be a big boon to productivity growth, which is therefore going to drive higher economic growth, particularly in the United States. So I, I've read some of the stuff that you put out there for, for people to consume and read the information on. You talked about five key long-term drivers for the market that are actually accelerating right now and not weakening. Would you talk about these drivers and their impact on the market? Yeah, so let's think about, as an example, this digital revolution. We've had this tremendous amount of technological innovation, but we have not had a robust corporate investment cycle since the Great Recession. Well, every company right now is sitting around asking themselves, was I using the right you know, conference call line? Did I have the right fail-safes and backup systems from a technology perspective? 
Or are my servers good enough? Is my internet security good enough? Is my work from home software good enough? Um, if I'm a if I'm a store, how is my um, my curbside delivery and, and app doing during this crisis? And they're going to upgrade. And we think that upgrade that 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 going from good enough to better, better to best, is going to help infuse the economy with these technologies even further and accelerate the digital revolution. So we think that's going to be a big thing. Second theme is uh, growth is the new defensive. So. We've always been of the belief at Federated Hermes that cash flow is king, right? You can, you know, revenues move up and down, earnings can be manipulated, but cash flow is cash flow. You either have it or you do not. And uh, growth companies in general have generated a lot of cash flow over the last few years, which means they've been less reliant on external funding. And therefore, when there were pressures in the bond market and it was difficult to get financing, didn't matter to them. All they had to do was reach into their pocket to find the cash. So I think that's two. Uh, we think that healthcare, we're going to see a, a big push there. So one of the, the, the stories here is that we weren't prepared for a pandemic, right? We didn't have the number of hospitals, doctors, masks, uh, tests, tracing. We didn't even know who was supposed to be in charge of half of this stuff. And so because of that, we just all locked ourselves in our home, waited until we got our act together, and now we're trickling out. Um, just like after the oil crisis in the 70s, you saw the establishment of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, we expect that you'll see the establishment of a Strategic Healthcare Reserve in the United States, where we stockpile key antivirals and medical supplies and testing and things of that nature, invest in hospitals and doctors and, and, uh, and nurses, as an example. Uh, next one is... Um, Look outside your window, and not every company is going to be okay. The difference between the winners and losers over the next 10 years, we think, are going to be much greater than the differences in winners and losers over the last 10. We've lived through a period of time where the economy grew, but it grew at a slow, a slow enough rate and with an easy enough monetary policy that everybody was okay. That the difference between the best company in the space and the worst might be the magnitude of their success. Well, in a period of social distancing, which is going to exist at least for the next several months, the difference between winning and losing could be doubling or dying. Just look at the retail space to see, you know, prime examples of that. And so in that environment, we think that you can't own everything. You have to choose the winners and avoid the losers. And so we think that's a big theme. And then the last theme is the death of brand China. Um, we can go into this in more detail, but in essence, we think that uh, through, a, through technology and through some of the ill will that's been caused by this pandemic, China is no longer the premier emerging market in the world. And in fact, the next great emerging market could very well be the center of the United States, which we think is going to bring economic activity to the United States and be a big uh, win in the sale of small cap companies. So you talked about China, and you also talked about the the stockpile of a healthcare supply. The one thing that I feel like COVID has taught us has been the value of having supply chains. Uh, do you see a renaissance uh, coming back uh, as far as the productivity to the United States with supply chains as well? Yeah, I, I, so, and I think this all happened was happening before COVID. In fact, I think this predates the trade war. Um, 
Companies went to China with their supply chain in order to find cheap labor, right? That's primarily why companies went there you know, 10, 15 years ago. But two things have changed. Number one, the goods that we consume are less labor intensive. We consume less big things and more services. And two, manufacturing itself, because of automation and robotics and artificial intelligence, has become less labor intensive. It takes fewer people to run a factory today than it ever did. In that environment, the question becomes, if my factory is completely run by robots, do I still want it in China? I think the answer is no. Your shipping costs are higher because you still sell most of your goods to the east and west coast of the U.S. and Europe. Your energy costs are higher because they don't have any. You have very little in the way of intellectual property protection. That's been a big point of contention. From a geopolitical risk perspective, you don't know if Kim Jong-un is dead or alive or what he's going to shoot in the ocean this weekend. You've got tanks rolling into the financial center of Hong Kong, which may be on the verge of revolt. And if you believe that there were only 80,000 cases of COVID in a 1.2 trillion of a billion person country, I've got a factory to sell you in Wuhan. Uh, and so against that backdrop, it's not to be overly political. It's just to say that if you're a company and you're looking for the ideal environment, that's probably not it. And when you look at the center of the United States, I've got more land that I can fill with people. Trust me, I've been to most of the center of the country. we got space. Um, easy shipping routes to the east and west coast. So much energy that we can't even store the next barrel in Cushing, Oklahoma. Um, ironclad intellectual property protection. One of the lowest tax rates in the world. An educated workforce. Wonderful bourbons, but no diseases coming out of Kentucky. And amber waves of grain. Now, on top of all that, I've got both Democrats and Republicans that are uncomfortable with certain aspects of doing business with China, be it unfair trade relations, human rights issues, environmental issues. And I think everybody's uncomfortable with the idea that 30% of our medication comes from an economic rival. And so from that perspective, I think that companies, number one, are going to see the value of having diversified supply chains more than they did before. I think this epidemic brings that home. I think that the overall environment has shifted towards one that favors the United States. And I think policymakers on both sides of the aisle are going to do everything they possibly can to further tip those scales. Um, and so we think we've hit a tipping point there. So just diving in a little bit more about this IP protection, you know, for, for the average listener, g give us a, a backdrop, if you will, on the, the difference uh, that a company would experience from an IP protection here in the United States versus in China. Yeah, it's simple. You invent something here, you keep it. In China, you invent it. Three weeks later, there's an identical one across the street at half the price. I mean, I, I, I'm being a little bit, you know, I, I know I'm being a little bit flippant there, but what it really comes down to is this, right? We're investors. And whether I'm investing in the equity of a company or the debt of a company, ask yourself this question. Will a company generate more money over its lifetime and therefore be worth more? if it's able to keep its intellectual property inventions and advantages? If the answer is yes, then you want to protect that. And the stakes are even higher here because the intellectual property we're talking about is the intellectual property behind that industrial revolution. So it's not just about you know, protecting the secret sauce for you know, John Q. Company. 
it's protecting the secret sauce, particularly on the semiconductor side, that's driving an industrial revolution that gives us the ability to have a, a pickup in productivity, which will allow the United States to remain the world's preeminent economic power, and therefore its preeminent political power. So this is big geopolitical stuff you're playing with here. And that's why these countries are so frustrated. And, and China has to try to take that intellectual property because they have population decline. Long-term economic growth is population growth and productivity growth. If you don't have population growth, you had better get yourself some productivity growth. Right now in the U.S., we have both. China has neither. Therein lies the problem. Agreed. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and uh, and wrap it up by talking about the banking system. I- I've read some of the federated uh, commentary that's been out there uh, where you guys have said that the banking system has relatively low exposure to leveraged lending. Do you see this trend continuing or accelerating? I think what's happening, so, so a couple of things. Number one, banks have been regulated out of some of the most uh, risky uh, endeavors uh, as they were involved, you know, before the great financial recession. And a lot of that has shifted over towards kind of the shadow banking system, these non-bank kind of lenders and financials, be they private equity or hedge funds or high yield funds, things of that nature. And I think kind of the biggest story with banks here is that unlike in Europe and unlike 10 years ago, where they were part of the problem, here they've been part of the solution. They've been a conduit to allow the Federal Reserve and the federal government to get funding out to companies. And in a lot of these cases, the banks are earning a fee for generating loans and servicing loans where the ultimate liability, if the loans go bad, still sits with the government. That's a fundamentally better business model. It's an asset light business model. Um, And I think where you can really see the health of the U.S. banking system right now is in the Fed's approach to their return of capital. Whereas in Europe, you've got the ECB, you know, more or less forcing banks, you know, to cut dividends, you know, cease buybacks, things of that nature. Here, okay, the U.S. banks decided not to engage in buybacks, but it was a voluntary decision, and they have not had to cut their dividends, which I think is, is a real sign of strength this time around. So in general, we think that one of the reasons why the economy can bounce back from what we've experienced is because unlike 10 years ago, we don't have an impaired financial system which is a really important difference. Totally agree. Well, Steve, that's all the time that we have today. I really appreciate your thoughts. I've learned a lot. I I love what you said. Mediocrity is unacceptable. Uh, The digital revolution is real. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Great to join you. For more content from Steve and his team at Federated, you can follow him on Twitter at schevarone. That's S-C-H-I-A-V-A-R-O-N-E. Or you can follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Matt Rush SFP. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified as new episodes are released. And if you're interested in our firm or would like to contact me, check us out online at strategicfinancialpartners.com.